Well, this morning, our conversation with James, uh, we're continuing it regarding a faith that works. We've learned that everyone puts their faith in the something or, or someone, whether it's science, whether it's self, whether they put their faith in God. We're all people of faith, but not just any kind of faith. We want a faith that works. We want a faith that, that makes sense of the world, that gives us meaning and significance, a faith that makes an impact. Well, isn't it interesting that, that God as well is wanting us to have a faith that makes a difference? Not a Saturday morning comfortable pajamas kind of faith, but a faith in work clothes, a faith that's ready to go to work, a faith that's ready for action. Not just an emergency or crisis kind of faith, but a faith that makes a difference every day. I want to reiterate what uh, Ben shared this morning about the, the summer spree. Um, man, <clears throat> take advantage of having all of our local partners uh, here at, uh, in the parking lot this morning. Take advantage of that. Because these are ministries that represent a faith that works. A faith that's making a difference in our community, in our city, and, and around the world. And so I encourage you, I can't, well, I can't encourage you enough to, to go outside and, and listen to their stories, stories of transformation, stories of brokenness and restoration, stories of, of hope and freedom, stories of faith that makes a difference. And so I encourage you, don't leave this morning without walking through those tents, uh, talking to one or more of our, uh, of our partners, just hearing their story, what they're doing, what we get to partner with um, <clears throat> as they do ministry here, there, and everywhere. You know, uh, Ben was right, you know, the, the t-shirt and the point system and all that is, is fun and, and all of that, but really the, the real point is this is an opportunity for us as a church to see what God is doing here in our community, there in our city, and everywhere around the world, and to be a part of that. And so I <clears throat> encourage you to go check that out uh, after the service today. Well, James is a book about a faith that works. And so I encourage you to, to grab a Bible or your device and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, remember from last week, if you missed it, go online and listen to Dan's conversation about joy and trials. But if you remember from last week, James is the half-brother of Jesus. See, James was a skeptic who became a leader of the early church. Well, what made the difference? I believe what made the difference is he began to see who Jesus really is. You see, he had grown up with Jesus, he had walked with Jesus, he had lived with Jesus. And, and just take a moment to think about what that might have been like. You're like, who broke the lamp? I told you not to throw the ball in the house. Who did it? Well, we know it wasn't Jesus. James, <laughs> you know? And so it must have been a little bit difficult for him growing up in that house. But he heard him teach extraordinary truths. But more than anything, he saw his brother nailed to a cross and breathe his last breath. More than that, he witnessed his brother's resurrection from the dead. And as a result, James's faith changed. It gave him a new perspective of how to live, how to love, how to stand firm and consider it joy when faced with trials of different kinds. He wrote this letter to fellow Jewish followers of, of Jesus scattered throughout uh, the ancient world because of the, the persecution that they were facing for their faith. 
They were facing severe trials, trials of pain, trials of suffering, trials of loss, trials of poverty. And James is encouraging them, don't abandon, don't compromise your faith. Stand strong, live out the faith in the midst of your trials. Because you see, how we walk through trials is key. We either walk away from God or we run to him. And as we'll see today, what you understand about God makes all the difference. In the very midst of a trial, when I'm feeling fear or anxiety or pain or sorrow, and somebody approaches me and says, hey, how can I pray for you? You know, I might say something like, well, pray for healing or or pray for relief or pray that God provides for my needs or or pray for these rascals who are like just causing me all these difficulties. Pray, get rid of the trial. And and that's typically what we say, get rid of the trial, Uh, eradicate the pain. It, It makes sense. But in the verses we're looking at today, James is encouraging a radical change in our thinking. See, the Bible says that the trial itself is not the biggest problem. The greatest danger to me is not the wrong being done to me, but the wrong that may be done by me. Our response is a big deal. See, the noun trials in verse 2 and the verb tempt in verses 13 through 14 have the same root, and and it makes the connection clear. They they have distinct, distinct meanings in their context, and so we translate them differently in English. But James is describing here in verse 13 and following a different response that stands in contrast to what we learned last week. It looks something like this. I think it's easier to to, to visualize it. Last week, we looked at how trials can present testing. But if we choose to persevere, to live up under the testing, we persevere, and that perseverance creates maturity, a spiritual maturity. And so it begins with difficulty and trials, but it ends with being more, growing and being more and more like Jesus. Compare that to the response of this week's passage. The trial produces temptation. And we choose to succumb to the temptation and sin, and sin produces death. You see, it starts the same way with difficulties and trials, but this time it ends in death. It seems like a pretty clear choice. James doesn't mince words. You see, the real threat is that when wrong is done to me, I may... I may be tempted to pursue something other than God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who lived during World War War II and was executed by the Nazis, knew suffering and trials and the resulting temptations. And listen to what he writes. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over me. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Listen closely. Satan doesn't fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. You see, when we find ourselves in the midst of trials and difficulties, the temptation to forget who God is and go our way becomes so strong. Well, several years ago, um, <clears throat> I went whitewater rafting with a group of guys, and, 
And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we got down there and <clears throat> they gave us our life jackets and our helmets and our oars and everything. And we were ready to jump into the boat and the instructor was like, no, nah, I've got a few instructions for you. It's gonna get pretty wild out there, but I need you to listen carefully. It says, when I yell right, I want you to all shift right and paddle like crazy. If I yell left, shift left and paddle on your left like crazy. So we're like, oh, okay, we got it. You know, no big deal. We hit some rapids and things like that. It was fun. And, and then we started to hit these big swells. And the boat was going up and crashing down and, and rocks. And we were headed right for this huge rock. <clears throat> And the, the guide yells, right. And so everybody shifts right and, and starts paddling as hard as they can on the right, except me. I go left. And I start paddling like mad. And I flip the raft. Six guys, our lunches, our oars, a very unhappy guide were now floating down the river. <laughs> We were okay, but, and, it, and it ended up being uh, one of the best highlights of the trip. <laughs> but the point is, when I was in a crisis, when I, was, when, when I was under stress, I forgot the instructions. In fact, I actually think I, I forgot my left from my right. <laughs> and as a result, I flipped the boat and I flipped all my friends into, into the water. We were, they are all safe, they're okay, don't worry. <laughs> but isn't it e so easy when trials come to forget what we know to be true? To, to forget, forget all this stuff that we know to be true and we respond with our feelings in a panic. And we respond in, in, in ways that, that are opposite of what we know to be true. And we forget and we make poor decisions and, and we shift to the wrong side and we flip the boat. I believe the temptations that James addresses in these verses come in the midst of his readers' trials, and he's more concerned with how we'll respond to trials than the trials themselves. For example, the temptation to harbor hatred or, or take revenge toward those who have persecuted us. The temptation to be jealous in our financial hardships. When I'm going through trials, I, I can begin to feel sorry for myself. I, I begin thinking, well, you know what? I've, I'm going through a really hard time. I think I deserve this. I, I don't care if it's wrong. I deserve a little happiness. I deserve a little more, a little extra, a little pleasure. God isn't treating me right, so I'll treat myself. God didn't rescue me out of this, so I'll lie, cheat, and steal to get my way out. We see this in the student who cheats and rationalizing that God is to blame for giving him a difficult teacher. The person who steals blaming God for his poverty. You see, when we feel slighted or ill-treated or overlooked or stressed, we can become very self-focused. And out of our own pity party in which we feel the world is against us, we become overindulgent, self-centered, and self-absorbed. Have you ever blamed your parents or other people for what you've become? Have you ever blamed circumstances for, for something you may have done? Now obviously, don't get me wrong, people and circumstances, they obviously, they do affect us. 
But one of the most significant ways we resist the work of God for our growth toward becoming mature and complete is to blame everyone and anyone else than ourselves. When we play the blame game, we can excuse just about anything in our lives. I think we learn it early. As I was thinking about this, uh, <clears throat> I think some of you will, uh, will relate to this. I, I had two older brothers, and my parents drove a station wagon, and we would all sit in the back seat. And the seats had these lines on them. And so we would have these self-designated areas. This is my space. Don't cross that line. Well, the only thing that it just set, it set us all up for failure because soon somebody was crying or arguing and someone was saying, I didn't do anything. It's his fault. His finger crossed the line. So I punched him. He deserved it. Right? Anybody relate to that? <laughs> and, and this type of reaction, it just follows us then into adulthood. They started it. He deserved it. She crossed the line. It's her fault that I did that. And on and on it goes. And we enter into this death spiral of sin. Not only this, but when we're at our lowest, the temptation is to look for something or someone that, that promises escape or, or immediate satisfaction. You might be tempted to self-medicate with food or, or alcohol or materialism. Or, or maybe you felt tempted to, to lie to get yourself out of a tight spot or, or to engage in behavior that you know is out of bounds. But here's what we need to realize. When we say yes to temptation, we're saying no to experiencing God's goodness in our lives. Every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. And so when we say yes to temptation, we're saying no to what God wants for us. And it comes with a price. It comes down to our decisions. Do I believe who God is or don't I? Am I willing to follow in faith what I know to be true about God? See, Dan said it last week, your theology needs to determine how you view pain and suffering. And I think in the same way, your theology, what you believe to be true about God, your faith in God determines your decisions, your response to trials and temptations. And so James begins by stating what we, <clears throat> that we must recognize what's true about God. We must recognize what's true about God. In verse 12, he begins, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. You see, it's easy to blame God for our problems. Lord, you put me in this situation. God, you gave me these desires. God, you knew I was broke. God, you, you knew I was weak in that area. But God is never the source of our temptations, never. God never sets us up to fail. God doesn't tempt us. He never puts you in a situation where you have to sin. Never. 
And see, God can't be tempted. He can't be moved to do wrong. And one, of the, one reason this is true is because of his complete sufficiency. You see, temptation appeals to our needs and our cravings and our desires. It holds, uh, uh, holds out a promise to, to satisfy these things in us. But God has no need to be satisfied. His happiness is complete and absolute. Temptation has no hold on him. Not only that, but his per- perfect holiness makes him untemptable. The original language here literally says God is unversed in evil. In other words, he's entirely set apart from it. He is holy. And because of his holiness, his absolute perfection, he's not vulnerable to temptation. And not only is he holy, he requires holiness of us. And his will for us is always toward holiness, never toward evil. The perfection that, that makes it possible, <clears throat> makes it impossible for him to be tempted, makes it impossible for him to tempt anyone else. God is never the author of temptation. And so we need to recognize the truth about us. In verse 14, we read, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. Or as the message puts it, people ruin their lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get blamed? You see, James James declares that God is not the source of our temptation. We are. God doesn't try to make us stumble. He doesn't tempt us to do wrong. Yeah, God sends, he allows hard things to come into our lives, but he does so to help us to grow, to become more and more like Jesus. But when we choose, when we choose to use these things as an opportunity for sin, God isn't the one responsible. You see, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we've been shifting blame for our own evil. When God confronted Adam, Adam responded, it was the woman you put here with me. She gave it to me, and and I ate. When God confronted Eve, she replied, I was deceived by by the serpent. You see, they both dodged personal responsibility. In fact, Adam ultimately blames God for putting Eve in the garden in the first place. And so G- James wants us to see that if we go down that route, we never overcome temptation. We dispute and we dispute the holy, perfect character of God. You see, the real problem is me. <laughs> the real problem is us. And so James continues and he outlines the nature of temptation. He says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Well, there's several things that we learn from these verses. Temptations are universal. James says, but each person, no one is immune. Each and every one of us faces temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We all face temptation. The issue is how are we going to respond to it? The second thing is that temptations are personal by their own evil desire. Temptations are tailored to trip us up. In fact, if you flip over a a couple more pages in James in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You know, I've often heard Pastor Bob say when talking about accountability, don't trust yourself. And it's true, we can't trust ourselves. I can't trust myself. In fact, I have more trouble with Jonathan than any other person I know. And so temptations are universal. Temptations are personal. Temptation is a process. And it starts with that desire. It starts in us. And yet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, our desires are good. Our desires are natural. They're given to us by God. However, when those desires turn into into lusts, desires out of control, that's when they become dangerous. Many of you probably saw the video of Ellicott City, Maryland this past week. And I'm sure those converging rivers on the outskirts of town make it an amazing and enjoyable place to live, to go fishing as, as the water flows between the banks. But when those waters overflow the banks, the destruction becomes overwhelming. You know, I think that's a pretty good picture of our desires. When the desires given to us by God run between the banks that God's established for those desires, life can be pretty amazing, pretty enjoyable. But when those desires overflow the banks, it wreaks utter destruction. These evil desires then lead to deception. James says that we're enticed. He uses a a fishing analogy. He talks about we're baited and the the hook is, is hidden. The fish sees the bait and and bites. He thinks, man, I'm going to get an easy meal and becomes the meal. The root in Latin means to stir the fire or to provoke. And so it's this continual danger lurking uh, to catch us off guard, to entice us, to draw us in, and then drag us away. You see, sin seems enjoyable at the time, but in the end, the pain, the shame, the guilt, the consequences outweigh the pleasure. The bait not only attracts, it disguises the consequences, which leads to action. These desire, the desire and deception leads to disobedience and death, and James changes the, the analogy, the metaphors, and he moves from bait to biology when he writes, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, temptation has a life of its own. When we play around with our evil desires, a conception occurs and gives birth to sin. And as sin is allowed to reign freely in our lives, it it grows and develops, leading finally to death. It's that death spiral of sin. And it may take years, but sin always leads to separation and death. Sin kills. And so what starts as a passing curiosity becomes a settled desire, becomes an overpowering overpowering impulse that leads to foolish action that results in personal tragedy and shattered lives and broken marriages and ruined careers. And worst of all, we are separated from the God who made us. It's like we're constantly carrying around this open container of gasoline. 
And if we're not careful, our desires that quickly can strike the spark that causes the explosion. In fact, one theologian comments, James' object is to teach us that there is in us the root of our own destruction. We are walking time bombs and our desires hold the detonator. As we look at this, sin leads to death. It stands in stark contrast to what we read before in which the testing, the trial led to the crown of life. Death or life, they're completely separate destinies. At first, the two paths seem similar. It's just a small fork in the road. But we follow them out, and, and, and you're in two very different places. You're in life or you're in death. Someone has said, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny, life or death. But as I've been thinking about this and studying this passage and whatnot, I just kept thinking back, why is this such a struggle for us? Why at times is this such a struggle for me? I mean, let's be honest, being a follower of Jesus isn't always easy. There's, there's a tension between what we want to experience and what we actually encounter in every day. But if we want a faith that works, one that changes us and, and works in us to change us, we've got to find our satisfaction in God. You see, it's not that we don't want to have quiet times. It's not that we don't want to experience God's presence. It's not that we don't want to spend time with him. The problem is we want other things more. See, in the beginning, God created the perfect environment with everything Adam and Eve could ever want. And yet Adam and Eve, when given the opportunity, wanted the one thing they felt that God was withholding from them. And so they said yes to their evil desires and no to God. And after they'd sinned against God, I, 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 just, I think their, their response is fascinating. We read in Genesis 3-7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, the first thing that Adam and Eve felt after they had sinned against God is, man, something's missing. Something's different. Something's missing. We're not wearing clothes. We're naked. But, but here's the thing. They had been naked since creation, but, but not until they had sinned against God did it bother them. Why the change? Why the difference? Well, an early theologian observed prior to their sin, Adam and Eve felt clothed in the love and acceptance of God. Having been stripped of that, they felt exposed. Something wasn't right. Something was missing. And they went from perfect security and satisfaction to naked and afraid. You know, honestly, I think they reacted how any one of us would react if we woke up naked in the middle of Walmart. Right? (laughs) I mean, we'd do some shopping, we'd do some browsing, we'd do some price comparisons for a while, right? No. (laughs) We'd run for cover, (laughs) we'd hide. We'd make our way, try to make our way to the clothing section to put something on, hoping nobody saw us. And in the same way, Adam and Eve dug for the fig leaves and, and made the first, fruit, first pair of fruit of the looms. 
Uh, It's a dad joke. (laughs) But it's a fascinating part of the story because their response to nakedness typifies how we go through life today. We feel naked. Our souls feel naked. And so our lives become this quest to find something, a a relationship, a possession, a hobby, an achievement that will cover the nakedness, the exposure that we feel, something that will help us feel secure and loved and accepted. In other words, we turn to the fig leaves of family and, and romance and power and approval and comfort and control. But these things never seem to fit. They're they're like the hospital gown for the soul, never quite enough to, to comfortably cover our nakedness. And that's because what we're missing was never meant to be filled with the stuff around us. But with something, someone much greater, the love and acceptance of our creator God. And so all the things we try to fill our lives with, all the things we, we try to replace God with, leave us empty and, and naked because they're not big enough, aren't God enough to satisfy us. The prophet Jeremiah diagnosed this craving almost 3,000 years ago when he wrote these words. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this. You heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so inexplicably, like the Israelites of the Bible, we sometimes reject the fresh, ever-flowing, overflowing fountain of living living water that God wants to pour into our lives. And instead, we go out to the back, to the shed, and we grab our own shovel, and we begin to dig a hole of our personal broken, leaky pit of unreliable, stagnant rainwater. But here's what we need to understand. Nothing in this world truly satisfies because it wasn't designed to fully satisfy us. The world isn't God enough. If God is what we're missing, we won't find satisfaction in a soulmate salary or syringe. Deep in our souls, we thirst for joy, for significance, for, for, <clears throat> for security, for meaning, for unconditional love and belonging. We thirst for God. You see, today, maybe through a scary or stressful trial you're facing, God's trying to get you to see that no other foundation can support you. No other presence can clothe you. No other well can satisfy. That's why the greatest danger to James's persecuted readers is not the wrong being done to them, but the wrong they may do in forgetting God. See, James is directing them to the spring of living water. You see, when, when Satan originally tempted and deceived Eve, he did it by getting her to doubt God's goodness. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, he says, you will, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The implication was, Eve, God's holding back on you. He's not good. Well, James straightens us out when he writes in verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. 
Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. He does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Maybe you remember in high school reading about um, the Odyssey and Ulysses and his encounter with uh, the sirens, and he was warned that as you, as you go by the sirens' island, that their song will be so beautiful, so seductive, that it will drive, drive you and your, your sailors insane and drive your boat into the rocks. Well, Ulysses was a, a curious sort, and so he's like, well, is there a way I can listen without that happening? And so they tied him to the mast of the ship, and And the rest of the sailors, they put wax in their ears, and they're able to sail safely by. But I'd never known this before. There's another, according to Greek mythology, it tells about another guy named Orpheus. Orpheus handled the problem a a completely different way. He knew they were going by the Sirens Island, and... and He knew about the siren's song, and, and so when they, when they get there, he began to play on his instrument, and he began to sing as the siren's song, its seduction and power tried to influence the sailors, but they, were never, they never heard it. The sailors never turned their heads to listen because Orpheus' voice and music was so much sweeter, and the sailors failed to pay attention to the siren's seduction. I think it's interesting because in the same way, we can make ourselves less likely to yield to evil desires if we learn to listen to the sweeter song that's found in a relationship with God. See, God's song is sweeter, more satisfying than the songs of our evil desires. See, James wants us to recognize that everything we need is found in everything God is. Everything we need is found in everything God is. And so James reminds his readers that they're greatly loved by God. They experience this love of God in a deep way. And he wants them to understand when you're tempted to give up, remember how much God loves you. When you're tempted to satisfy yourself with the filth and stagnant water, remember the spring of living water that God wants to pour into your life. When you're enticed by the songs of your desires, turn up the volume to the sweet song of God because God is good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. He gives good and perfect gifts. God doesn't send temptation. He gives good gifts. Everything we enjoy comes from him. And the idea here is that he gives gifts continually. They come down. They don't stop. This unending succession of good gifts. And so even in trials and faced with temptations, God is good continually all the time. His compassions are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Not only is God good, God is great. These gifts come from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Another translation puts it this way. There is never the slightest variation or shadow of inconsistency in God. The heavenly lights refer to the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. God is the creator of all things and stands above all that he's made. 
these heavenly lights turn and rotate and shift and get lost in shadows, but not God. God doesn't shift or change. He's consistent. And I think about this with myself. When I, <clears throat> when I get hungry, I get hangry. I change. <laughs> when I get tired, I get grumpy. I change. God doesn't. You see, he's not good some of the time. He's not loving most of the time. He's not present part of the time. He's good, loving, and present all the time. And so when he says that he loves us, that doesn't change. He's always loving, always truthful, always faithful. And James reminds us God is good, God is great, God is a giver. God is a source of our salvation, the source of our forgiveness, the source of our redemption, our new life. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And to illustrate God's goodness, James goes from the expanse of the universe to the heart of the believer. And just as God acted freely in his goodness when he created all things, he also freely chose to bring us to himself and give us new life, to give us a relationship with himself. He's the source of our new life, and it's because of his goodness and mercy that we're called his children. In fact, Peter writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the Israelites were to bring the first portion of their crops, the first fruits as a thank offering to God. It was like a pledge or a down payment to indicate that that everything belongs to God and so we're going to give our best and our first to him and knowing that everything comes from him, everything belongs to him. And so James is reminding us his first fruits were set apart to God. We belong to him. I read this just yesterday. I thought it was a powerful thing, a powerful uh, verse that I don't know that I had ever noticed before. God is speaking to his people, and and Isaiah records it for us, chapter 49, verse 15. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. You see, the prophet Isaiah said that it's more likely that the mother of a newborn child would forget her baby than God would forget his people. Do we understand what great love God has for us? And so whatever trial you may be facing, God has not forgotten you. Don't forget him. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget what he's done, what he's doing, what he's yet to do in your life. Don't be deceived. God is good. He is great. He's a giver of new life. I'm going to ask Aiden and the, and the worship team to come out as we close with a few thoughts. The thing is, when you're faced with a trial or temptation, we've got to come back to these truths. God is holy. God is faithful. God is loving. God is good. If you want to overcome temptation, embrace who God is. Find satisfaction in him. Tune yourself, tune your heart to his song. 
You see, in this way, the trial becomes an opportunity to drink even more deeply from the well of God's goodness, his faithfulness. But here's the thing. James isn't oversimplifying the dark and awful crisis these men and women of faith were facing. He simply understands that greater things are at stake. We're to be more concerned about how we respond than the, tr- than the pain of the trial itself. And the only way we'll respond in a way that shines a spotlight on Jesus is if we drink deeply from him and are satisfied in him alone. See, the truth is you may be walking through a trial or a difficulty this morning and, and you've allowed it to overpower and control you in a way that you've been tempted to abandon God. Perhaps you've been, become so obsessed with the difficulty you've forgotten God. Lean into him. Maybe you've been blaming God for your choices and decisions. Take responsibility and, and drink from his unchanging goodness. Possibly you find yourself in a death spiral of sin and wrong choices. Well, yeah. Will you commit to choose a different path, to let God break you free, to turn to him, to place your faith in him, to find new life in him for every good and perfect gift comes from his hand. I've had a couple weeks to think about this passage. Several years ago, something in my life happened and, and I'm glad it did. But it also continues to be a source of pain and testing. And this pain, this testing, it it, it, it threatens to to flip the boat on me. It leads to to doubt. It leads to this this self-obsession and questions that lead to a dark place pretty quickly. So I I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what temptations or trials you're facing this morning. I don't know the physical or mental or emotional pain that you're experiencing, but this is what I do know. And this is what I cling to. We have all that we need and all that he is. I have all that I need because of all that he is. And I know he is good, he is great. He's a giver of new life, of abundant hope and faithful love. And so I cling to my satisfaction in my God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You're someone that we can cling to. This world is not God enough, but you are. And so, Father, as we're facing trials and temptations, Father, may we not choose the path to death, but a path to life and persevere to stand up under these trials. Lord, that we might become more and more like Jesus. Lord, help us to cling to you. Help us to focus our eyes on your face, to know who you are. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of of who we are in light of that as your children, sealed, delivered, adopted, 
and to your family. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your loyalty to us. That, Lord, even when I'm disloyal and unfaithful and I choose differently and I let go, Father, you never let go of me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for that assurance. I thank you for the living water that you pour into my life continuously. Lord, may we drink deeply from you. Lord, I love you too. In Jesus' name, amen.